0: Good to see everybody today. just thought we'd get this out of the way right up front. Yes, the fire department was at my house yesterday. <laughs> it was a controlled burn. And from my perspective, very controlled. But someone said they heard an explosion. Such a relative term, isn't it? Explosion. One man's explosion is another man's Oof. <laughs> it's not an explosion. So, yeah. Um, I'm not going to try to work it into a sermon illustration. There it is. All right? They were there. And uh, from my perspective, didn't need to be. But nevertheless. All right? Okay, Romans chapter 9. Seven weeks, eight chapters. Now we're ready for number nine, and I believe it best, felt it best for us to go back and take in again what we've heard over the first eight, because I think it will serve us well as we get into nine. So one sort of serves the other. So if you're just joining us, we're going through this book. It is Paul is a man, this Apostle Paul is a man that God foreknew. He just knew that he would be his, and so he knocked him off a horse in Acts chapter nine and said, you are Now, he didn't resemble Jesus, didn't want anything to do with Jesus at the moment, but he pre-decided that he would be like Jesus, and so he turned him into that through all kinds of different things. And now this man, chosen by God to be his instrument, um, writes a letter to a church divided. Romans is a church that's divided, and it's divided because we're all so different. And the only thing we really all have in common... In this room today is our need for the crucified Christ and so what he's trying to do is to call their attention to the thing that they they have in common and they need and so he begins like this I'll just kind of take a verse from each chapter to to summarize it up but he starts he says I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe to the Jew and the Greek, to the super-religious person and to the heathen, and you both need it. We'll start with the heathen. This is chapter two. You are full of unrighteousness. You are slanderous. You are a gossip. You are an inventor of evil. You are disobedient. You are faithless, heartless, ruthless. Any kind of you can. comes back around and the religious people are like that's right they're like but what about you you judge them for doing all this stuff but you do the same thing you religious people who stand up here and teach do you teach yourself you who stand up here and teach do not steal do you steal you who stand up here and teach do not commit adultery do you commit adultery the only difference between you and them is you can hide it better You are lawbreakers all the same. And that puts you in the same spot. Three, this is what we have to get today. Romans, God through Paul to Romans is trying to get us to understand an identity. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If we don't grab a hold of that today as us, then then what we're going to talk about is going to fall flat. And this is the hardest thing for us to believe. Like even though we know we sin, no one truly believes that we're an enemy of God. We don't. We're always going to stop short. What do you believe about your badness? "Eh, I'm bad. But uh, I'm not an enemy of God. But you have to replace that with what it says. So it puts us all there. No one by themselves seeks after God. We all love other stuff. But, the rest of chapter 3, now a righteousness from heaven has been revealed. Do you want to be right with God? It's from Him, not you. You can't do it, so He did it for you. A righteousness revealed from heaven, received by faith, that is Jesus Christ the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received. You need the life and death of Jesus to cover over this mess. And that's why He provided it. A life you could never live. The righteous standard finally met and Jesus did it for you and payment for all your sins and you need it. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered over. That's chapter four. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven by God, whose sins are covered over. Blessed is the man whose sins are remembered no more. That blessing came from heaven in in the person of Christ. Chapter 5, For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, that was Adam, we all have his nature, a sin nature, and so death is our inheritance, ah, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. This is the power of the gospel. To be right with God is a free gift. The free gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you want a different inheritance instead of death? It's a free gift of righteousness. And then you get what Christ got, which is life after death, a new resurrected body, and life with God. So here's the temptation, and this is chapter 6. It's a free gift? Great! I'll take it. What shall we say then? Shall we take the gift and just keep on sinning? Because the more I sin, the bigger the grace of God gets. And I'll actually do Him a favor. Anybody doing Him a favor? I'm, I'm a champion for God's grace. I blow it every day. No, it you're a slave to righteousness. Live up to what you've attained. I love that. He gave you standing. Live up to it. He already gave it to you. It's a way different thing than try to get there. You can't. He gave it to you. Live up to it. Way different. But, chapter 7, you're going to find this. It's going to be hard because you'll find this to be true. As someone who's received the free gift of righteousness... You're going to delight in what God wants to do inside in your inner being, but you're going to find this law at work in your members that love to sin. And so there's going to be this battle from this day until the day you die, and it's going to go back and forth, slave to sin, slave to righteousness, slave to sin. So get ready for the fight. But, I mean, how many know that fight? You're in it right now. It's going to be worth it. Because it's just the first fruits of your inheritance. So you've got an idea. I'm going to get something. But here's the promise in chapter 8. I promise you, what we're going to get is going to make all this struggle worthwhile. And here's the promise. From this day until that day, nothing in all of creation will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Bang. That is Christianity. That is the picture. That is the Gospel. And that resonates with, there isn't a single person in here like, man, I don't need that. That's the picture. Why does He start? I have a message that is the power of salvation for all who believe. Is there something powerful about that. So He takes that message and He goes all through the Roman Empire. But what, here's what's breaking his heart. That message is not being received by a particular group of people and that group of people are the Jews. It's, it's his countrymen. It's his kinsmen. It's who he came from and they refuse to believe and it's killing him. And that disappointment is how he starts chapter 9. I'd almost like to stop right there. Like, I, That's great. That's a good message so far. Believe it. Let's go home. (laughs) Okay, we got to keep going. I'll start at verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus was a Jew. God came to the planet inside of culture as a Jew. God who is overall blessed forever. Amen. So this group of people that refuses to believe, that message, they were sitting at the front table when it comes to God. They should have been the first ones to believe. We're all familiar with the first table. Like, if you've been to a wedding reception, you know what the first ta- does. The first table get anything different than you? <laughs> yeah, better clothes. They get no time schedule. We all have to wait on them. They go take pictures. They eat first, even though they were late. Does that bother anyone? <laughs> right? It's just like, come on, right? We have to stop and listen to the speeches. Everybody cries. Like, can we just go home? I'm kidding. If you just got married, like, I loved it. If I was at your wedding, it was awesome. <laughs> Does the first table have different privilege than anybody else in the room? Yes, they do. Who's at the first table? Jews. And they miss it. They had the adoption. They, God said when He made His reach to humanity, you, are, you will be my sons. They had the glory. Do you know what glory means? They had His presence. Of all the people on the planet, God said, I will dwell among you. You will have My presence in the tabernacle in the temple. Nobody in all of creation got the presence of God in that way, and they had it. They had the covenants. When God decided to bind Himself to humanity, He made His deal with the Jews. You've heard of the Old Covenant? It's the larger part of the Bible. <laughs> the Old Covenant, it was made with whom? With them. When He made His reach, He bound Himself to them. He gave them the law. Who was the law for? It was for them. Do you know what the law says? Don't kill people. And don't take other people's stuff. And if that guy has a wife, would you just leave it alone? It's not. It's the basics. Who's the law for? Us. It's a loving, good thing. And He gave them prophets. And prophets were always saying for hundreds of years, this is what God is doing. Hey, Jews listen. This is what God told me. This is what makes him happy. He doesn't like this. Like, constant communication with God through the prophets. 365 times in the Old Covenant, they were telling this, the big thing God is doing is He's going to send a suffering servant. Now, it didn't, they didn't call Jesus the suffering servant all the time. They had all kinds of names. But what they knew was that someday, in some way, God was going to send a Savior. And they were in the front seat and they missed it. And when he arrived, they refused to see him, they refused to believe in him. They actually killed him and it was killing Paul. So much so that he said, I'd go to hell for him. I would be accursed and cut off for them if I could, but I can't. So it's that personal crisis that he starts chapter 9 with now it, that's not the drumbeat the the bigger crisis comes after that and the bigger crisis is this and this is what 9 10 and 11 are all about if the jews are accursed and cut off if the jews are falling away they're perishing outside of Christ then has the word of god failed this is the question If you were to read 9, 10, and 11, 9, 10, and 11, I suggest you do. Read them together because they are a package deal. They are trying to answer this one question. Because listen, if God said, of all the people on the planet, you will be my treasured possession and I'm going to set you apart and there's going to be a a holiness and a calling on your life that's different, but some of them are falling through the cracks, then is God, are His promises any good? If His promises aren't coming true for them and Jews are perishing outside of Christ, then are the promises that he made to us any good? Has the word of God fallen? And that's where it comes into us. All that stuff I just said in 1 through 8, is that in play or not? And if the same guy is behind 1 through 8, well, maybe it's not in play. And so he goes at it for three chapters answering that question Has the word of God failed? And his answer in verse 6 is no. No, it has not. And then he builds his case for why it has not failed. The reason for the question, this is how we begin, is that the Jews are perishing outside of Christ. They are not believing. And now he makes his case. Listen, it's not that the Word of God has failed. So here we go. This is the case. Now, here's what we have as we get into it. Here's what you have the opportunity to take in. He's going to tell us some revelation about God that maybe some we've never heard before. Certainly not in church, maybe ever. And we have the opportunity to take in revelation about God, and that is always good. It's always good to take in some. God saw fit to reveal these things about Himself, and He put it in there. So we must include it in what we believe about God alongside of, or maybe even replace some things that we hold. Because we all hold some things about God, but where did we get those things? Did we get them from the Word? And if we didn't, maybe we let them go. And the other thing that we get by going through this case is this assurance that the answer is no, that the Word of God has not failed. And as we go through it, we will see that God's Word cannot fail, that He is over all things, and everything He's extended to us in Christ is in play. The, God, the Word of God is, it, it has not fallen, and it cannot fall because of the god because of the god who's behind it. So here we go. He says, we'll start with 6 and 7. He says this. This is how I know. And he and he builds his case. I know that the word of God has not fallen because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So his first answer is this is how I know the word of God has not failed not all of Israel is Israel. So you can fill that in. You're like, oh great, glad I came today. What does this have to do with me? I can't even spell Israel. Please tell me how this is applicable to my life. All right, let's stick with it. He's able to say that by saying this. He is is a scholar of the Old Testament of first order. No one knows the Old Testament better than him except Jesus. That's it. So he's able to say that not all of Israel is Israel because of things that God said. So he, he knows. He's looking into what God said there, and he's like, hey, wait a second. There's an Israel. Okay, there's a physical nation, but, inside it, but just a physical nation, that doesn't mean that you're, in God's eyes, truly his Israel. I can see it by what he said. So the first thing he points to is this, to make this point. God narrowed it down. I'll say it this way. The, the, children, the children of the promise is not the big physical. There's a group inside of that that's narrower. And, and Paul knows it's narrower by this. He said, the children of promise will ride with Isaac. That's verse 7. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So it's only there through Isaac that's going to be Israel. Now that makes no sense unless you know there was a choice. So Isaac was not the only son of Abraham. There was another one called Ishmael. So we have to understand how he got there. And then God chose between the two. Both were sons of Abraham, so both should come out as Israel. Both should come out as Jews, right? But only one is going to be. So how did Ishmael get here? If you recall, God is trying to get Jesus to the planet. That plan to save started with a man named Abraham from Ur. Remember when we went through the Old Testament? Ur is right back there. Earth. He said, "Go to a land I'm going to show you." They journey up the Tigris and the Euphrates. They get right here. Dad dies. They move on to this land bordered by the remember the waves of the Mediterranean. There you go, right there. Remember, and right there in that land, God said to Abraham, "Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have so many descendants." They're going to outnumber the stars and all nations on the planet are going to be blessed through you. Here's the problem with that, which is always the problem, I think, with God's promise. It takes too long. We can't wait. Who's good at waiting? Yeah. He waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And so he realizes things are getting old. This is not going to happen. We don't even have one kid, Sarah and I. I've got to jumpstart this nation. So they make a decision. Sarah has a, a, ma- or a servant. Her name is Hagar. He goes in with Hagar. They have a child together, and his name is Ishmael. Comes out of that and like, here you go, God. You were in a major jam. She's 100. I'm 90. It was never going to happen. We took care of it for you. Let's get this nation started. And he says with Ishmael, oh, that he may live before you. And God said, no. Through Isaac, that's not even here yet, that's where the promise will ride. For the the promise says, this is verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. You're a year too early. You should have waited. Ishmael, not what i wanted the promise was always going to ride with isaac and so to him i say no the promise comes through him god chooses so yeah there's like israel there's all kinds of descendants and you can all trace your way back to abraham but god said no true israel is just through him and there's a there's a huge piece of symbolism here that we have to see ishmael was man's attempt to become a child of god and isaac was the supernatural act of god to make his children his don't miss that. Ishmael, like what is all of romans about you can't get to god on your own It's faith, not works. And this, a gift, it's the gift of faith from God. That's how you get to God. You can't do it on your own. And so Ishmael represents man's striving. Of course he's going to be pushed aside. You can't get there on your own. And so God chooses. He narrows it down. Who is Israel? Israel's who I say. Israel's who I supernaturally determine. And that's who's it going to be. Now, okay, so you see how it narrows? Somebody's got a case way down the line like, hey, wait a second, I can get back to Abraham through my offspring. No, you, no it's Isaac. Why? Because I said. Now, smart Jews in Rome would have said, oh, I know what you're doing. I get it. The reason that Ishmael was out was because Hagar was a Gentile, and that was poison. Like we couldn't pollute the line. It needed to be straight Jew all the way. And so no, you're still trying to put yourself into the situation. You're you're still trying to be autonomous and say, I'm a child because of something that I did or something that I have. So the next example he gives, he's going to narrow it down even further. The next example would have just set, set them all back because the next one he says is, I'll make the same point another way. So you get it. Now, I'm going to choose again. I'm going to narrow it down again. But this time it's going to be inside the line of Isaac. It's going to be straight Jew all the way. And they're going to be twins in the same womb. And even there, I will decide. I'm going to narrow it down again. And the, the next example he gives is Jacob and Esau. Isaac, the promise is riding with Isaac, right? Rebekah, they have twins before they're even born, God says, of the two, the promise is going to ride with only one. Why is he giving this example? To get the people to get their mind around the fact that it's not something you do. It's what God is doing. You don't, you're not autonomous in that way. So this is what he says. For those of you who still aren't getting it, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, four, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So he narrows it down again, and the narrowing had nothing to do with some gentile servant it had everything to do with god's choice who at the end of the day is israel who does the promise ride with it rides with whomever god chooses god chose those that would be his now how can we say that we can say that because that's what god said in the old testament Where does the promise ride? How does it drill down to present-day Israel? It drills down by my choice. I choose. So who is Israel? Those that God chooses. This says there is no human element, no human distinctiveness figured into that. Before they did anything, Jacob and Esau presumably so as to win over God's favor or not, it was decided. Unconditional election. The children of promise inside of Israel are those that God chooses to be His. God elects. The doctrine of election is in the Word. God reveals that is part of who He is. God chooses. So, that's what He said. So now, let me roll it all the way. This is where the rubber will meet the road. So when Paul is teaching and preaching 1-8, through The gospel is the power to save. This is the thing that we have in common. Christ and Him crucified. And you have got pockets of people that are believing. And you have pockets of people, probably His friends and His co-workers and His colleagues and His fellow Jews that are not. Why are they not believing? Because God didn't choose them. Because God has not decided that they would. That's what he's dealing with. That's what he said. Who's Israel? Now, is the promise riding? Absolutely. It's in play. Are some Jews believing? Yes. Are all? No. Why? They weren't chose to believe. What is bubbling up inside of you at the moment? That's not fair. Verse 14. It's almost like he knows what we're thinking. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? so let me give you an example this is this is not this is not an example that scripture gives but i can take two people so jews that heard the gospel one believed one didn't so there's a guy there's they're both in the priestly order there's a guy named caiaphas anybody know who caiaphas is caiaphas is the guy at the end of the day that killed jesus he's the chief priest and then there's a guy named simeon are you familiar with simeon He's in the priestly order too. But Simeon is the guy that was waiting at the temple as soon as baby Jesus was like eight days old. They brought him in to do all the, the Jewish ritual. And as soon as Simeon saw him, he was a Jew, he's like, God finally did. He sent the suffering servant. How did he know that? He was a tiny baby. God decided that he would know. So you have these two people. you got Simeon and Caiaphas. When Caiaphas is told right to his face, I am the Son of God. You will see me riding on the clouds. You will, like all the things that Jesus said, and he just, it was like this, he just refused to believe it. No, you will die. Chosen and not. Like, that doesn't seem fair. His answer, you know, his answer is in our text The pot can't tell the potter how to make the pot, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a little more underneath there. That's so what he says. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? That's a humbling revelation today in our, and it's good. It's good to have high revelation about God that humbles us. Because if we can get humbled a little bit under what God reveals about himself, that is the very best place. The worst place we could be is to rise up above it and say, oh, I think I know better. That's a dangerous place to be. So receive it today. So let's talk about how God is not unjust in that choice. I will take you back to what we said. This is a drumbeat that Paul has been building in our letter over and over and over again he's dealt with it multiple times and that is you and i on our own never choose god there is a foundational and fundamental or you could switch those two words like i did in my notes fundamental and foundational truths that went into effect the moment sin entered the world and what are those? what's what we've been talking about It's Romans 5.12 and 3.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that was Adam, and death through sin, so the wages of sin is death, and Adam did it. But listen, we're not here suffering because of Adam's sin. Like, man, we're stuck here and everything's broke because that one guy messed it up. No. And so death, from that, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The nature of Adam, like Adam is us. He represents us. We don't choose God. Given the choice, there it was. And that nature, Adam's nature, passes all the way down to us. We have a sinful nature that we come in with. Here's the result of that sinful nature. That's 3.12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one, no one, no one. Our nature, our very nature as we come in, is enemy of God. Our nature in the womb is enemy. And it is the hardest thing. I know. I tried to get you to remember the example. We believe something different than that about our badness. The example I gave about my son who broke my saw. I love chainsaws. Remember? We had 10 cuts. He took it. He parked it where he should not have parked it and he drove over and he broke it so bad. But it did hurt because he knew I loved it. And he he had something in him for me. He cried. He was like, I am so sorry. And which is what we believe about our badness. Everyone in here would agree, I broke the saw. Anybody not broke the saw? You all drove over it. You crushed it. This is what we believe about it though. The same thing, John's badness. I didn't mean to break the saw and I'll try to do better next time. And this whole life is somehow saying, I broke the saw and I'm sorry. I broke the saw and I'm sorry. No, this says, this says, this is us on the inside. Glad you're here. I crushed your saw. I hope it hurts. And bring me another one. I'll break it right in front of you. You must understand that that is you and I. I know that is me so deeply. Here's what I've realized. I need this discipline in my life. I need the discipline of going to the Word and having to study it enough that I get up here and I don't just fall flat on my face. That I've got to do that work and I've got to dig into it. Because the moment I get away from it, I just a little bit my heart is so prone to wonder, I will run to garbage. I will. My nature does not love Him. And I don't want Him. And I don't even care if He sees me in absolute rebellion. I know for sure I need this. God, never take this discipline away from me because it in some way anchors me. Like, I need that duty. Because I'm afraid of who I will be if I don't have it. Anybody have that in your heart? I do. So, in the womb, Jacob and Esau... This is not a crapshoot. This is this is not God going. Well, we'll see how this goes. How's it gonna go? Who are they in the womb? Enemies. Under which one will love me? Neither. Neither will love you. On their own, without your action, neither will love you. So if of the one, if Esau by his own nature, never chooses God and never will and doesn't even want you, goes in this way, goes in this way towards, we're going to make this way enemy of God. If he just goes this way naturally and God lets him do it and that life that he lived as an enemy of God ends up in demise, has God somehow given him something he did not deserve? No. He has not. God is not unjust. That was going, going to be an enemy. And that was going to end this place. And by not choosing, it wasn't the, the difference is, like, this is what rises up inside of us. No, like when God chooses, he holds down these, these people who really did want to love him, but then He wouldn't let him, and he chose them, and he's mean. No, no. He doesn't have to hold anybody down. You never choose Him without Him. Here's the encouraging part. Here's the one I want you to think about this morning. Is there anything in you that wants to love Him? Why are you here? I mean, why did you end up in this room today? Why are you here? Could you say, if I go up and down, like, I do. I do need this. I do want that i do that's god that's god go with it why are you here my uncle made me it's all right man we hey it's okay came on a good day i'll bet you you're here for a reason free gift of righteousness that I could never earn on my own, provided by heaven. Sound good? Is God unfair? We don't want Him. What's, here I'll tell you what's unfair about that. What's unfair about The definition of not fair is, I didn't get what I deserved or I got something that I didn't deserve. Esau cannot say that. Do you know of the two, the only one who could say that? The only one of the two that didn't get what he deserved was Jacob because have you read about his life? Train wreck. The fact that God did choose him is amazing. The more amazing of the two is Jacob. The only one of the two that didn't get what they deserved was Jacob. God is not unjust. Don't look at that election, choosing as God being holding down. No, He's not. He is not because you do not want Him on your own. I, I see, keep saying you. I don't. All right. So the other thing about it that you need to see that uh, it helps you. It's helped me because this is, it bends your mind a little bit, is this, that God's choice doesn't override ours, that we still choose, but our choice agrees with his. That's the other knock against that, like, no, like he, I was gonna, but then he did it, like, he trumped mine, and so I couldn't, no. The the way that it rolls out, God's choice doesn't trump ours. Let's look at that very life of Esau. He gave us this example for a reason. So they're both going in the sinful way. Esau and Jacob, right? Because by nature, that's the way they're going to go. And Esau's a man of the woods and Jacob's a man of the kitchen. Familiar with the story? Esau goes out to hunt. He kills. He's hungry. And Jacob was making soup. And he came back in. And he said, give me some of that soup. And the sinful Jacob said, the promise rides with you. You're the oldest son. Would you be willing to trade the promise? You're the heir. Everything that God is going to do is going to happen through you. Would you be willing to trade that? And he said, sure. You'd be willing to trade the promise for soup. Yep. I mean, God didn't override his choice. Those examples are everywhere. Don't think that God has overridden us. He gives another example right after us. It's Moses and Pharaoh. Moses he chose, Pharaoh he didn't. Huh. But Pharaoh's not upset about it. That's the crazy thing. Like, If you look at the picture of those he did not choose, no one is ever complaining. The only one that ever complains about God's choosing are these folks over here. No one over here ever, they don't care. Pharaoh, he says, you're familiar with Moses and Pharaoh. Let my people go. That guy, right? He has them captured. But it said, God said, I will harden your heart. And the reason I'm going to harden your heart is that from you in that hard heart my power and my might and my majesty is going to go all throughout the planet. And it did. How do you know about the miraculous wonders of God? Through a hard-hearted Pharaoh who would not let him go. And God did it. And from that, God got to show this glory and this and this power. And he can do this and he can do this. And all the nations were in awe. Like, your God can do that. And God used a hard heart to do it. But if you read that account, pharaoh's account in exodus it also says that pharaoh hardened his heart too that he agreed with god's choice god didn't trump it he agreed with it over and over there's all kinds of examples well we're running behind but there's all kinds of examples so the amazing part is what when you see if you can see it Everyone always camps out on this verse and goes, Esau's getting... What about Esau? The amazing part about this is the fact that there's a Jacob at all. The amazing part about this is the fact that he did choose anyone because he gains nothing. (laughs) Jacob is sinful and miserable and he's a liar and a cheat and the... God's choosing is actually gracious. So, God says, verse 15 and 16, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. One of the purposes of election is so that God gets the credit for salvation. To ensure that God gets the glory for the salvation. That's what he said. I'm doing this. I did this. I hardened people's hearts. I narrowed it down. The blessing was only going to ride with a few, and the few were my choice, and I did it so that in that group, there's no way they could have ever taken any credit for anything that the glory for salvation is mine alone. The second reason I'll put on here, and then we'll wind it down, is the purpose of election is so that God gets the glory for salvation. Two, the purpose of election was so that salvation could go beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And that's the answer he gives in 11. It's salvation, salvation. But number two is to make sure that salvation extended. Because, here's the thing, I'll just give it to you like this. Listen, the only way that salvation is going to get outside the Jews is if a one-time-for-all-time sacrifice for sin happens, and that sacrifice was always going to be Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, so that had to happen. So what God did inside of his people, sent Jesus as a Jew, is he hardened some of the people around him that would not believe, and they killed him, and that Death that they brought upon him was the sacrifice that was going to spill out to the world. This is the way it says it in chapter 11. I hardened them so that the riches of my salvation would go everywhere. But there was going to be no riches of salvation. There was going to be no shed blood unless I hardened the people in this way and so I did it. Two, the reason he did it is so that you and I would have the opportunity to be saved. Here's how he says it. Listen for it. I'm going to read chapter 11. I'm going to read several verses, and I want you to listen for it. Why did he do it? Like, why would he do that? How can he harden some? Like, Caiaphas couldn't believe. He couldn't see it. Well, God was using that to kill him so that that riches of the, the blood would go spread as far as you and I. Listen, listen to it. Here's 11. you got to get all the way there. We're ramming through this. This this should take some more time, but you've got to read the whole thing together. 9, 10, and 11. But this is the ultimate answer at the end of 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? This is Paul writing. And Paul's a Jew. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected people whom he foreknew. And then he gives an example from the Old Testament about how God always saved a remnant. Verse 5. At the present time, okay, when he's writing this, there is also a remnant chosen by grace. Who are the Jews that are believing? They're chosen by grace. God decided that they would believe that remnant. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect obtained it? Yes. The rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day he did he gave look listen what it says i gave them i would not let them believe because i had something i wanted to do was that unfair no it was not unfair like they, they they wanted to kill him he did not override their will but he wouldn't let them see it for this to happen here's the richest part did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather through their trespass salvation came to the gentiles you see it so as to make israel jealous Now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So God has something else in store for them but his point at the time was to harden them in order to kill Christ so that his blood could spill as far as you and I. And it makes sense. There's always been something that's bothered me inside the Gospels. And it's Jesus speaking and teaching. But he says, he always speaks in parables. You know, these little catchy stories where he'll see a guy plowing up on the hill and he's like, you know, that reminds me of... And he'll tell some plowing on the hill story and somehow it's tied into the kingdom. Right? All the time. But he would speak those stories out really wide so a whole bunch of people would hear them. But he only gave the meaning to a few. Do you ever... And over and over and over, it always bothered me. These verses bothered me. So he would speak out these parables, and this is Mark 4.10. And when he was alone, so after the crowds dispersed, he would bring back a few Jews, who were the disciples? They were Jews. And he would say, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may not indeed see, but not perceive so they may indeed see but not perceive they may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven why did he speak in parables so they wouldn't believe that drove me nuts but you put together a wider counsel. what is god doing i hardened him So that riches of salvation could go to the world. Was he unjust in his hardening of them? No. Because we're born enemies and they got nothing. No one will be able to say at the brink of destruction, I didn't deserve this. Because God is just. That's what he says. Now, personal crisis for Paul, not avoided. He still and will live with personal turmoil. But theological crisis, avoided. The Word of God has not failed. The Word of God has not failed. The promises that He made to them are in effect for those that really were them. The Word of God has not failed. And that means for you and I, that all the promises that were read in Romans 1 through 8, those are in play. If there is anything in you that wants to love him, respond to it. The proper response to a message like this is believe. There's lots of improper responses to a message like this, but the proper response is really, I would say, two things. Now, this comes from R. Kent Hughes, who wrote a book on a commentary on Romans you take this in, and you see some revelation about God, you're like, wow, I didn't realize that was part of the picture. Yep, that's part of the picture. It's humbling. The best place we can be is humbled. The proper response to what you've heard is, I stand on a rock higher than I. I stand on a rock higher than I. There are things that I do not understand. God is here, and I am here, and I, never, I, I know it more fully now than I ever knew it. And that's a good place to be. Don't do this. Hey, this doesn't seem right. You're a pot. He's a potter. You stand on a rock higher than you. He knows. And two, believe. 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 Free gift of righteousness provided by heaven that you need to believe and receive. May that be the response that a message like this brings about today. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for being a rock higher than we are. I mean, if we have you all figured out, then I guess you need to scoot over and we'll take your place. But you're in control and we are not. So humble us by what we've heard today and cause us to believe. And I ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody said...